Yo, uh, that that 100 Gex is, like, really abstract, right? Like, they don't, like, the lyrics are all out there and shit. Do they sing about real things? What, what, what like, what's, what do they sing about? Well, Stupid Horse is about uh, betting on a horse and losing all your money. That's real. And then and my family is has has lived that song for generations. And then Dumbest Girl Alive, which is their new single, is about um, like just spending all your time on your phone and on Instagram and just it warping your brain. And you're like too stupid to even recognize the problems that you have as a result. So they are like the Ur Uber band. Like Beck was like the Ur millennial. They're not so different than Beck, actually. Like the way Beck was like super sarcastic and yeah. stoned in like Ironic the early and, 90s and weird yeah. yeah beck is a very good parallel actually so i just thought of that myself hopefully Do they don't wanna... become as lame as beck would, would you like to live here on air for the first time play me the new uh just a little bit like a little sample of the new hundred gex because I, I i'm not sure i ever heard it i'm at that phase in my music appreciation where i, I understand new bands from like the discourse on Twitter and where they fit into things. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. All right. We're like dropping into an abyss right now. Oh, we're going to see a movie in high definition. All right. Oh, fuck this. This bangs. (laughs) Oh, I see why you went to this now. This is good. I'm really afraid what it's going to sound like when the singing starts, though, because this could be really bad. It's not? Okay. Ah, little Adam and his package shit right there. Oh, I get it now. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah, no, it's not bad. It's not, I wouldn't, it's like not to my taste. I wouldn't listen to that on my, on my way to work, but I think I got my head around oh, Also, it. when I saw them, I was really high, so I felt like I was seeing Black Flag in their prime or something. <laughs> in retrospect, it could not have been that good. Well, no, yeah, you, you got to go a little high. Uh, what, it was at a big concert hall? Yeah, it was at Avant Gardner. Oh, up, yeah. And it's, uh, and it was there uh, slam dancing? Did anybody open up It was up too crowded. It was like. Uh, it's like a 3,000 person venue and it was totally sold out. There wasn't really, I mean, people were dancing, but there wasn't really room for like a pit. Okay. All right. I think there would have been where their room. So they're, they packed the house. That's pretty cool, man. That could not be more different from our weekend last weekend where you and I went to go see the American pastime. We went to the ball game together with, uh, Anders Lee, uh, with Rax, with our friend, Ashley, Anders Lee here. Funny, I don't know if it was funny when every time we lost Anders, we go, Anders Lee, here. <laughs> yeah. But what was funny is that um, Anders and I went to the discount souvenir, uh, the mer- discount merch shop at City Field, and we both got 9-11 Memorial Met Chats because <laughs> they were uh, discounted for some reason. In a real, in a real <laughs> sense, you're a sicko. So <laughs> you're wearing that ironically, like in a very real sense. I, I want to take the patch off, but it's glued on pretty tight. So we were, we were walking back from the merch shop and um, this uh, we were walking through like the sort of food area and there's this crew of kids like maybe around 14, 15 and one of them was wearing a hundred Gex fan. I mean, are they even, there might be gen uh, a or whatever, like whatever's after the alphas. Um, But you know, just like disgusting teenage boys. Sure. And one of them, well, I think maybe two of them were Mets fans, but then one of them, their leader, it appeared, was wearing all Yankees stuff. And he spots Anders and gets in his face and says, yo, can you buy me a beer? And Anders, like, hesitates for a moment. And, and later he explained to me that he was thinking about it because, like, when he was a kid trying to get beer, you'd ask someone. But this guy was not being nice. So I got right back in his face and was like, we are not buying you a beer because you're a Yankees fan. <laughs> And we kept, and I was like, "Let's go, Anders!" And we kept walking. But now yeah, this, this now it's screwed up. This fucking Yankees fans think they can just alpha dog everybody. You always talk about class unity, and here in practice, you had a Mets group being led by a Yankees fan. You know, the separation had been overcome, and there you went in and you fucking drove a wedge between them again. Yankees fans think they can just up. march in the city field and just demand beers, like. 
Yankees fans <laughs> drink for free at City Field. <laughs> Fuck no. I wouldn't even wear Yankee gear to a to a Mets game. Well, man. Mets so fans it's, it's are flex. Are cool about that stuff. It's not like it's not like if you wear a Mets stuff at the Phillies game or if you wear Yankee stuff at Fenway Park, like or Mets stuff get, at Yankee Stadium, you'll get shit thrown at you. Yeah. Uh, Mets fans tend to be pretty chill about that stuff. It's like we're you know we're not. Uh, I mean, back in the day, like the Mets Yankees rivalry was pretty hot. It's not hot anymore. No, I, don't think so. I bet it even it's probably not even a big deal at Yankee Stadium to wear Mets stuff. It's not really a rivalry anymore. The Yankees won in two thousand, and that was it. I did put on it settled a- that. I put on a Mets hat for the first time at that game, man. I found the guy outside who was selling the real fucking cheapo ones for 10 bucks, and I said, you know what? The sun's going to be in my eyes. I'm doing it. So I, I crossed the Rubicon. Like, observers of this show, people who have listened for years, have seen me get closer and closer and closer to this moment, shedding my childhood fandom and moving towards the proletariat, which is to say the Mets. And with Andy's help, I'm I'm really on my way. I feel like, especially since they lost, that was a real like pro moment. Oh yeah, they're just terrible. eating shit. Yeah, <laughs> really bad. But it was a fun day, and that's it was fun. That's what's important is you watch them lose, and you're sad about it. But that's the point of it is to hang out and, and enjoy I, the game. And I said LGM for the first time. Let's go Mets. So um, there was something we started talking about this at the game, but we didn't really get into it. So I thought maybe we could talk about it a little bit today as a segue to talking about. Uh, our strike updates, our regular strike updates that we do on the show about the Writers Guild and um, other stuff like that. Um, But uh, in 1890, there was a revolt in Major League Baseball. A workers' revolt. Right. And learning about it, I've learned a lot about the history of the workers' movement and organized labor in the United States, which you probably know about, but I'm a little bit behind. I don't. I, I, I'm I not even sure how you ended up on this research project looking at labor and baseball. You've, like, you, as you were saying at the game, or it seems to me like you're reading several books on this, like a whole labor history of Major League Baseball. Well, the, the whole world will know soon why I'm doing this. Oh, but you have a big release coming down the pipe? Well, just keep your eyes peeled. But, uh, yeah, so... small Venn diagram of Antifada uh, fans and uh, baseball history enthusiasts are going to be so hyped for that. Uh, exactly. Um, in the meantime, if you're not a baseball fan, please don't turn this off. I'll try to make it interesting and short. But uh, if you are a baseball fan, definitely read Robert B. Ross's The Great Baseball Revolt, The Rise and Fall of the Players League. So this is the book to read if you want to know more about this. It's very good. It's published in, I think, 2016. Do you think like in Office Space where that one dude is named after... Um Fucking, what's that? That's do you think the guy whose whose name is is Bob Ross? Do you think he has some like feelings of hatred and resentment towards the painter Bob Ross? Like he has to call himself Robert B. Ross just to avoid the implication that he's painting happy little clouds all the time. I have been DMing with him, but I didn't ask that. That uh, that didn't come up. That's the first thing that would come up for me as a huge Bob Ross fan. Unironically, as a kid, I used to watch that shit on PBS all the time. It's great. Um, well, let me talk to you a little bit about. The Players League. And yeah, I'll rap at me. So uh, baseball begins in the mid-19th century uh, as, like, middle-class artisans, uh, office workers. They want to get outside and exercise. They feel like, you know, their manliness is threatened by these desk jobs and they're not getting fresh air. And so they go out and they play this game, usually played by children and college students, um, called, like, Town Ball or Nine Cat or whatever. Like variations of cricket, uh, and they call it baseball, and they formalize the rules, and they start um, this association of uh, baseball players because the game spreads amongst the middle class in New York and around the region. Um, and within a couple of decades, especially after the Civil War, the game professionalizes because people not only love playing it, and there's like you know hundreds of clubs, but they are starting to enjoy watching it. So there's this was like an organic grassroots, like civil society yeah. sports movement, yeah. essentially that spread. Very American in that way. Yeah, and what's especially American about it is uh, it really spreads during the course of the Civil War, not only in Union camps but in Union POW camps. So they start teaching it to Confederate soldiers. Um, black Union soldiers are also playing it. They're not the first Black people who have played it. There was some before the war, but a lot of. Uh, Union, black Union veterans play it after the war. And um, it's getting so popular that uh, uh, businessmen are beginning to build ball fields with stands and charge a gate fee. 
So the the enclosure, it was an enclosure movement of what had previously been like a sort of pastime that had been generally enjoyed by people in like a civil society. Right. And the players uh, accept this um, as like, you know, like they, they had always had to raise money to rent the fields and buy equipment and that sort of thing. So this is just another way to facilitate the game. But within a very short period of time, the owners realize that the better teams and better players are drawing better. Probably too much to get into, but during this time, the color line is established. So yeah, exactly. The, the, the game was previously played almost entirely by middle-class people. By 1870, the top teams are professional ballplayers and increasingly drawn from the working class, especially Irish and German immigrants. And so fast forward 15, 20 years, the National League is established where the owners of the ballparks take full control of the game they rewrite the rules of the game to their preferences, which is more defensive. They don't like home runs. They want to keep scores low. They have really strict moral codes on the players. They're not allowed to drink. There's no Sunday games. And part of what they're doing is they're, they're trying to attract middle-class fans. So this is a very waspy sort yes, of enterprise. Exactly. Like a very Protestant, like we don't play ball on Sundays. We're teetotalers. You know, these are the same people that would be in favor of prohibition and morality codes and things of that yeah. sort. And, and trying to discipline the wayward working classes in their various uh, dis, disreputable pursuits. Right. And the and so the working class is essentially shut out, not only because the games are too expensive, uh, but also because they work six days a week and their only day off is Sunday, and Sunday there's no baseball games. So they're really trying to discourage the working class, which is heavily immigrant at this time. Um and there is a, another league uh, called the American Association, which is not the American League. The American League comes in the, like, 1904. Uh, but the American Association was called the Beer and Whiskey League because it was more for the working class crowd. They played Sunday games. You could drink. And the Metropolitans, and there is some continuity between the Metropolitans and the 1962 Mets, funded by Tammany Hall. The Mets were very successful in the American Association, as so successful that they were invited to join the National League, but instead the proprietors of the Mets start another team that became the Giants. And they play in the same stadium, the Polo Grounds. My One of the foundational stories of my family is when uh, my grandfather went from being a Dodgers fan to a Giants fan. Not out of any class stuff, although there may have been part of that. It's because famously the manager, Leo DeRocha, transitioned scandalously from the working class Brooklyn Dodgers to the uptown um, Giants, and he followed Leah DeRocha in that fashion. And later the Cubs. Uh, but that's a whole other story. I'm, I'm making this way too long. But basically, this Tammany, th these teams, they're, although they're in the National League and the American Association, the players are working class, and uh, they become increasingly frustrated with this sort of owner's dictatorship. Uh, the reserve clause, which existed until the 1970s, where you were just bound to one team. You couldn't negotiate uh, higher contracts. There was a salary cap. And they started to have this um, classification system. It's sort of like a social credit system where, like, if your batting average was low or if your ERA was low or if you are caught drinking off the field or if you showed up late or something, you could be paid less. And so that really pissed off the players. They formed the, uh, in 1870, 1877, they formed the Brotherhood of Professional Ballplayers referencing, you know, the Knights of Labor and the early AFL. And a lot of these unions were, had brotherhood in the name. And they had a vision of a cooperatively, a cooperatively run baseball league that they eventually formed in 1890. So they broke away from the National League and the American Association and built their own stadiums in the course of one offseason. And it's really interesting reading about the process in, in Robert Ross's book because there was a ton of labor unrest and... The even though organized labor was very enthusiastic about this like labor run baseball league, there were strikes in Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Boston against uh, the construction of these stadiums, and they were resolved uh, except for in Chicago. There was like the ongoing labor dispute mm -hmm. there. This is a labor dispute within the cooperative. No, with the, the people hired to build the stadiums. Oh, okay. Because sometimes they just couldn't afford to hire union workers. Or in the case of Chicago, there was a citywide carpenter strike. And so no nothing was being built. And so the, the owners of the PL team were like, we need to build the stadium if this league is going to work. Like, what do we do? Like, please tell us, you know. And they couldn't. And they ended up having to get scab labor. 
Wow, shit, damn, that's that's very redolent of uh, this one article you have in the strike update about the um, Service uh, Employees International Union having a strike within their own ranks, the staffers on strike. The Players League lasts for one season. It's pretty successful, but they, they were looking for the same fans as the National League, so they were looking for middle-class fans. They continued to have prohibitions on alcohol, on Sunday games, and that sort of thing. They did not break the color barrier, even though some of the players knew that it was wrong. And there was a shortage of players because suddenly there's three leagues and most of the good players went to the players league, but they still had something of a shortage of players and they didn't break the color barrier. But most importantly, they trusted the owners because they found a new class of owners for this league. And they thought that they could build a cooperative relationship between the players and the owners where they would split profits. And after one season, the owners are like, you know, I'm not making very much money doing this, or I'm actually operating at a loss. And the owners of the other teams are willing to buy me out, like if we just dissolve into one league where the profits will be much higher. And that's what happened. So it lasts one year. And I think that it's a very good window into the shortcomings of organized labor, especially during that time in the late 19th century. Yeah, and also in um, the various attempts to like uh, create a... And I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, like a subculture, like you mentioned the Knights of Labor. It's this attempt to create not just like an autonomous working class organization, uh, one that's able to push its economic power, but also be a sort of more holistic type movement that brings in cooperatives, of course, uh, and also, as it turns out in this case, like sports um like an, like an internal like working class sports organization that's like for and by the working class. These were attempts that got thrown up over and over again through the uh, 19th century. But of course, it's a, it's a kind of like American labor radicalism that dies out, especially by the time you get to the 1930s, and one that's kind of lost, you know, creating like a whole other working class world outside of like the capitalist owners. Well, I think that was the vision of some of the uh, workers who supported the Players League, but the Players League workers themselves were the players, not the builders of the stadium, not the people that worked at the stadium. And the players considered themselves artisans. So they perceived themselves as having more of a middle-class Petty position. consciousness. Um, yeah. and, and they wanted to be on some sort of equal footing with the owners, and that was, their, that was their vision. And that was apparently the vision of the Knights of Labor as well. Classic. Yeah, like the this... Uh, the, the defense of the position of the artisans in the face of industrialization and descaling. Right. So classic stumbling block of uh, of socialist consciousness. Um, so yeah, that's. I think that's a good way into looking at some of the events of labor today and maybe some of the shortcomings of it as well. Yeah, I think today we want to, as Andy said, do a little strike update. Um, also some organizing updates because there's been a successful steelworkers drive in uh, Georgia of all places. Uh, coming out of the sort of sub uh, Green New Deal stuff that was passed last year by uh, Biden and Congress. Uh, also, I maybe we touch on the big dust up between uh, Dylan Riley and his uh, New Left Review sidecart uh, article where he really pissed off the left Keynesians about uh, the Green New Deal and industrial policy and, and all that stuff. So we want to kind of try to you know, give an overview right now what's happening with labor, what's happening uh, in the economy and all that good stuff. So does that sound good? Where do we start? Well, I think that uh, maybe we start where you mentioned um, the players uh, and uh, striking and scab labor and all that, because in the SEIU, which has come in for, I think, a decent amount of critique on this podcast and certainly in my discussions with uh, Derek Varn and Matt Chrisman, there is, uh, as you put here, a strike among the staffers trying to have a union um, within the union, essentially. You want to give us an overview of what's happening there? Yeah, and uh, thanks for to Claude for recommending this, listener Claude. SEIU workers, on, uh, they have their own union with PNWSU, and they are trying to negotiate a new contract. The contract is up at the end of the year, but they're trying to get a jump start on it, I guess. Uh, the strike is over now, but they had a sort of preliminary strike and they had a picket line, and it says here, this is an article from localnewsmatters.org. Staff members were angered when uh, SEIU responded to the strike by posting job listings seeking to fill the PNWSU positions and when a manager used a vehicle to break through their picket line. They also accused SEIU of hiring private security guards to monitor strikers in Los Angeles and filed another unfair labor practice charge that accused their employer of surveillance assault and intimidation. 
So, um, I mean, I've heard about cases like this. Like, I think it was uh, Acorn of the Working Families Party tried to organize with the IWW uh, a few years ago, and they all got fired or something like that. I don't remember the full story, but it's very bleak when you hear about, like, a union managers breaking a picket line. Yeah, and not only that, but, like, hiring replacement workers, you know, pr- presumably permanent replacement workers to get them out of there. That's. Uh, but these staffers have gone back to work. There was some sort of resolution. I'm not sure if it's, like, public what it was, but it seems like this will be a, a problem when the contract comes up at the end of the year, so... The SCIU is famous for being one of the few groups where there's been some growth, uh, labor organizations where there's been some growth over the last 20 years. Uh, and I think, as I mentioned in the in Matt, the episode with Matt on the labor question, uh, they did this through using, actually, like, Andy Stern uh, was trying to apply Albert Sloan's uh, conceptions of management, uh, famously over, I think it was General Motors. He had this corporate philosophy and wrote this famous book about, like, how to manage people and how to be a good leader and shit. Andrew Stern in the early 2000s, late 90s, I think it was, tries to apply these techniques to union organizing very much in um, concert with the uh, uh, Clinton administration. Uh, and basically what the SEIU did was in a very top-down manner, uh, oftentimes working uh, with local and national politicians, uh, did a sort of morality campaign in order to convince uh, different service, like janitorial companies and others, um, to sign on with a union very much in a top-down fashion, uh, which is to say without very much input at all from the rank and file. And so the rank and file would be organized under this SEIU program. Uh, they would get a contract, but oftentimes if you look at the details, uh, the they would actually end up not seeing that much more in their paychecks uh, and their conditions sometimes would be even worse despite the fact that the fact that they were playing un- paying union dues because the SEIU very much was like about signing people up, you know, at the lowest rung workers with, uh, you know, not a lot of economic power, but workers in like places like Kaiser Permanente, these big corporations where you could basically sit down with management and be like, we're going to have a union now. It's not going to disrupt things all that much. We're going to bring all these workers in. We can work together, capital and organized labor in order to, to get the job done. So the idea, of course that you would have from the inside of their organization, you would have workers fighting, you know, against uh, their prerogatives in a, what appears to be like a grassroots organic way. You can see with this philosophy of this sort of business unionism, how anathema that would be and how quickly they'd be ready to to hire a bunch of uh, permanent replacement workers for them. You don't do this kind of stuff, man. Well, do you think it's possible um, ever to have, uh, you know, an organization like a union or like, for example, a lefty publication uh, that is able to reach some sort of peace with the workers. Like so often we talk about um, when someone like uh, the guy who owns Young Turks and he was like anti-union or yeah, like when, when someone like that, like a progressive or a, a leftist comes out against the union in some way and we're like, come on, no, recognize the union voluntarily, negotiate with them. Um, is it ever really possible to, to do that? Or like if you're a business owner, do you just, the union is going to be a problem for you and you have to try to fight it to some um, degree? It's, it's not just about wages and conditions. It's about uh, control over the shop floor, right? And so that's a prerogative that, I mean, that was, a, that was settled in the United States by the, by the 1930s and 1940s about what the scope of unionism would be. It wouldn't be about like investment decisions. It wouldn't be about the production process per se it wouldn't be about the management of that to the extent that there were and still are in say construction areas where workers control uh, relative workers control was de facto on the shop floor you know that was kind of written in tacitly into contracts but the idea of uh, workers actually having a say uh, besides like maybe at like uh, as a as a lone voice at a shareholders meeting or like some recommendations put up to the board of directors that was kind of settled in the United States a long time ago. Interestingly, in my union, right in the carpenters union, they do a pretty good job of this, which is that when I call in to like put myself on the out of work list or check on my benefits or do any of any of the many, many different sort of bureaucratic tasks that the union makes so, so easy, so much easier for all of us. Like if I need a new health insurance card, instead of going on and like talking to my health insurance company, I just like call the union and some person answers and they sort all that shit out for me, which is awesome. Those people in the office are all paid the exact same rate as the rest of us out on the street are. 
which I think is pretty impressive. Somehow the Carpenters Union does this uh, with their staffers, the union staffers, better, much better than the SCIU does. Maybe out of like an old, so older sort of craft, older sort of like little D democratic unionism out of the 19th century where it's like, no matter who you are in here, whether you're like answering the phones or whether you're out there on the street, like we're all one, we're all part of the union, we all make like a, a similar or same yeah. wage rate because it was a more like, you mentioned artisans, it came more out of this like artisanal tradition of like republicanism and like constitutionalism and equality among memberships. You know, of course that equality stops at the, at the door of the union hall because outside, you know, you, everybody else is kind of like an enemy who's outside of the union as it's in your trade. But inside of that organization, you know, you have equality essentially. Well, I mean, maybe another way of thinking about it is like this, this thing that I've noticed in the, the, the strikes that I have participated in, which are usually at universities where um, every, like the rank and file is like pissed off at the bargaining committee. And so the bargaining committee resigns or whatever, and they elect a new one that, who are all like Maoists and Trotskyists and shit. And then they go in and basically are like negotiate the exact same deal. And I think what happens there is that they're just, you know, when you're in the bargaining committee, you have to evaluate the claims of the management. And so your struggle in that situation is like pouring over data and figures and seeing if what they're saying is true. And then the people on the picket line don't think about that stuff. All they want is they have like some certain number in line uh, in mind about like what benefits or what wages that they're fighting for. And it's a totally different way of, of struggling. Uh, those two things clash so remarkably. Like I've told this story before of uh, my friend's experience within uh, the New York City's Teachers Union, which is like an incredibly powerful organization. And starting, I don't know, after Occupy, like 10 years or so ago, like a newer crop of um, rank and file unionists popped up to on the left uh, in competition with the old Trotskyists who had been around and been a force within the union all the way back to probably the 1930s, but certainly since the 1960s. And the old Trots, by and large, were really good at that bread and butter shit. Like, they had a good understanding of, like, what was possible to win, um, you know, what the political dynamics were. But then like, also the, their conception of winning is kind of questionable, too. Right. Like, maybe it's not these specific Trots, but, like, you know, I think that in the... the labor movement there's this idea that the rank and file needs to feel like they've won even mm. if that's not necessarily the case well it's about what you're winning right because like what american unionism does in practice you know and and in really in theory about like what the scope of it is meant to be coming out of the 19th and 20th century is like economism right it's like bread and butter like uh demands um outside of you know the idea that there are like larger political claims uh god forbid like um, sort of universalistic claims about what it is that the working class in general deserves, those things are purposefully kept out of union negotiations in the United States, kept out of the unions by and large, not just from the outside with labor law, but self-enforced within the union. So, you know, the newer crop of uh, young activists in the teachers union coming out of Occupy Wall Street were making all sorts of larger political demands. When it came time to actually do the contract, um, you know, they were kind of uh, at a loss about what you actually do on these practical matters when it comes down to collective bargaining. Because as you said, this disconnect between all uh, the abstract conceptions of solidarity and justice and the political demands on the one hand uh, of like an activist rank and file have to meet with at the end, uh, certainly within the United States, with like the brute reality of an actual contract negotiation, the bread and butter aspect of that entire thing. So there's always going to be this disconnect. You know, there's always going to be that because that's built into the system. The, the interesting question is how you overcome that. And that's something we've talked about a lot on this show. But, you know, union staffers within the SCIU, people who work for the union, having an adversarial <laughs> bargaining with, the, with, with what is meant to be a very progressive uh, union, which on paper and in reality has like a very diverse membership. In fact, it's probably like as much as anything else in this country, like a, a black and Latino-led uh, and an Asian-led uh, organization, maybe not led, but at least like the people within it are, uh, you have this sort of progressive imprimatur on the SEIU, but then this ruthless reaction to attempts within it in order to gain more, I don't think should be surprising to us, given what I said before with the top-down nature uh, and inherently conservative 
um, you know, existence of these of this group. You know, maybe a commonality between the SEIU staffers or how they're perceived, and and then also academic workers, like at the sort of university uh, grad student strikes that I've um, taken a part in. There is this perception that these are a, a very privileged class of workers who uh, maybe should just shut up and like do what they're supposed to do for like the social good of the students or for the union or the nonprofit or whatever. <laughs> like uh, you guys are just office workers. You should continue to eat shit and do more work. Uh, you should make $20,000 a year right. so that the janitors who are right, members right, of right, the right, SEIU right. can make $23,000 a year instead of the $21,000 <laughs> a year they're getting right now. And of course you, you get the love of the game. Yeah. You get that impulse with the writer's strike too, where it's like, Oh, we're supposed to sympathize with uh, a bunch of Hollywood writers yeah. and, um, and, you know, they're working very hard to push back against the perception because it's not the case that you write a few episodes of Matlock and you, you're set for life. You're living off those, um, what do they call them? Well, I mean, you still get royalties, but it seems like it's not very much and they try to take it away from you by, like, taking your shows off streaming or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, what do you think about the writer's strike? Like, I guess we could do an update on what how it's going. Uh, yeah, it's on day, what, 10 or 11 right now as of this recording. We're recording on Saturday. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we, we find out neat little fun things, which is that surprise, surprise, Aaron Sorkin as a Hollywood writer is one of the most virulent anti-union people out there. One of the 9% of people to vote no on strike authorization going into this. Also called the WGA, the Winers Guild of America, because all these writers do is fucking whine. You know, Aaron Sorkin, people know his work, the newsroom, West Wing. He's like this sort of er conservative liberal sort of uh, avatar out there. Like, this guy's brain is just filled with Clintonism. He is like the the Hollywood writer uh, apotheosis, if you will, of, like, Clintonism in practice and, and everything. Um, no, I mean, he, he was anti it, and he said something, I think, that a lot of uh, commentators, not just, like, Clintonite trash, but also conservatives as well, or at least, like, Republicans as well, which is, like, why do writers need a union? You know, these guys aren't out there swinging a hammer. They're not breaking their backs. They're not even pushing a broom, you know, like the SEIU janitors. Why do these guys uh, need a union? I mean, there is, of course, the bread and butter stuff. But what's striking to me is how little people understand the way that um, union shops or unionized industries create like an entire ecosystem, right? If you want to have IATSE, you know, be a going concern, which are the production people who do the lights and they do the stages and, the, and whatever. If you want to have them as a going concern, uh, if you want to have all of the thousands of Teamsters, including uh, uh, the father of a, of a guy that I work with uh, on the job that I'm on right now, uh, Teamsters, truck drivers who are able to like make a good buck and a living wage off running materials around for, uh, for union movie sets or whatever. Um, if you want to have unionized actors who, of course, like any other industry, there's like a, like five or 10% maybe of them who do really, really well. But there's just a lot of like no name working actors who are able to make a decent little living uh, because they have a union. This is an entire ecosystem to give an example, like out in union construction, anybody that comes on the, our job sites has to be union, right? It's just part of like having been signed onto the contract, having it be a union job. And so, so many other uh, business, so many other like groups of employees within that infrastructure are also then union as well. It's the same thing with the writer's strike, right? Like you can have a non-union uh, movie production situation, right? But no union worker is going to touch that shit at all. You have two different spheres, one union with relatively good wages, a little bit of workers' control, such as it exists in the United States. And then you have, like, the jungle on the outside of that, of where it's, like, all freelance and precarious. People are making a, a good buck. And so the writers being part of that union infrastructure makes that ecosystem stronger and allows the people who, oh, the people who do, quote-unquote, real work of, like, the production and hauling lights and shit around, if you consider that, quote-unquote, real work, it allows those people to actually have the power that they have because they exist within this larger union ecosystem. And a good example of this is that Local 11, which is a Unite Here, Unite Here Local 11 in Los Angeles has backed the writer's strike, and these are hospitality workers that represent three hundred uh, thirty thousand members: the bellmen, servers, housekeepers. Oh yeah, valets, like catering cooks. for 
for these events are a big union trade too. And you might remember, I think it was after the Oscars, uh, uh, not the last one, but the one a year ago, they, there was like an after party at Chateau Marmont, which I guess is like a Los Angeles fancy hotel yeah. or something. And there was a picket and some of the celebrities crossed the picket line. Some didn't. Um, but the writers guild and the directors guild and IATSE and, uh, uh, SAG-AFTRA, um, showed up to support these pickets uh, and now they are showing up to support the writers and they are um, refusing to cross picket lines at these non, uh, these like strike breaking uh, film sets or what have you. Um, so it does seem like there's kind of this union town thing happening in Los Angeles, this more holistic thing around the entertainment industry, um, including, you know, I'll, I'll say another thing quickly about baseball is that at the all-star game, Again, uh, a year and a half ago, or maybe two and a half years ago, um, I think I think they're also unite here local eleven workers who worked at Dodger Stadium, where the All Star Game was, were in contract negotiations, and they threatened to strike for the All Star Game, and the Major League Baseball Players Union, um, which uh, yeah, has no connection to the Brotherhood, uh, but they haven't done a lot of solidarity stuff. Like they still have this sort of perception of themselves as like a specific kind of union, but they threatened to recognize the picket line of the stadium workers. I think that led to, yeah, some sort of breakthrough. These are positive things, and they show how these strikes do work, regardless of, like, what role the riders play in the reproduction of capitalism. And I think the way that you put it is, is like, a much better way of looking at it. Yeah, it's something, like, I don't remember the 2007 strike. They struck for, like, 100 days. I, I do recall hearing about it at the time, but I wasn't sure I looked into it all that much. I wonder if these sort of displays of solidarity, refusal to cross picket lines, certainly the, the a lot of discourse floating around about it. I wonder if that was as big as yeah, that's 2007. A good question. Maybe social media has changed more now than we that, were back then. Or you got to wonder if like workers are a little bit more radicalized now as a result of just what's happened politically in the last eight years. Or if like their conditions are just so much worse that they have to, they're just kind of forced to be a little bit more militant. If you look at... Uh, What's at stake here? The the one that really made a headline of was, of course, that the writers have a clause or they're fighting for a clause that uh, tamps down on uh, things like chat GPT and like AI writing scripts, which is like a horrific notion. The idea that you're going to like put like a television show or a movie into the fucking blender of chat GPT and what's going to come out the other side is like good entertainment. Of course, that's ridiculous. But of course, we can't put it past the production studios and the owners of this shit uh, to try to use like AI. To I mean, have you workers. watched those children's shows on YouTube? That's like, no. it's there's like just millions of AI generated children's cartoons oh, of like creepy. itsy bitsy spy. They're incredibly creepy. Have you seen those funny like fake commercials that are done by AI going around where it's like, write a pizza commercial and it's like these people, these AI generated characters who look human in like a very Freudian sort of like, what's the term where the uncanny valley sort of way until they open their mouths to eat the pizza and then the pizza like flows into their mouths in like, an alien way and their yeah. their rictus just grows to these huge heights and they swallow the pizza like they're an anaconda or whatever. Or the like, beer commercial where they're, uh, it's like a Cronenbergian like <laughs> human beer hybrid that two men are drinking at the same time. I couldn't even look at that. I don't have a lot of phobias, but like the, <laughs> like the weird body... Uh, body horror stuff, right. man. Like that's what AI is capable. Of I mean, creating. we will we will see those, but I think we're we're gonna see them as like a, a joke, like a self parody of themselves. It's like everyone will know it's AI, and it'll be yeah. funny that it's bad, which is what it is now. Which right. is actually it's amusingly bad. Like but we I all don't, enjoy it. I just don't know how good it can really get because I haven't seen any evidence of anything really fooling people and. You know, people get fooled by these things, but they usually want to be fooled yeah. by it. There, there is a part of us, and I mean that in like a collective social sense, that like wants to believe that it's believable, that like wants to see these powers at work. There's a, a part of us that like is looking towards the abyss, like the nihilism of imagining that like meaning and content and art and beauty can be created by something besides ourselves, something out there. I f it's like a very... Yeah, like it's very redolent of, I think, like the kind of not pessimism and sort of nihilism right now that we kind of want the computers to take control. Like we want the computers to tell us what's up. And away from these weird like stoned abstractions I'm talking about right now, 
what the strike uh, and the, the circumstance of the strike and what's going on in bargaining right now is all about is what the stakes of like every strike is really about, which is that there is a changing technical composition uh, within the industry, uh, a changing use of uh, human labor and technology. Uh, there is a, uh, a massive change happening in the way that people consume and access uh, the things that the writers are producing. In this instance, of course, it's the streaming services and the amount that these workers are going to get with, that was the word I was looking for before, residuals, um, from things like Netflix and Amazon, which, let's not forget, have like revolutionized the way that people consume these people's writing, uh, consume media over the last five or six or seven years. It hasn't even been that long. So the negotiation is over with these new delivery systems for entertainment, like how can capital most effectively break the power of writers to get some more, to claw back some more of that versus like how much can the writers actually retain of the sort of like uh, privileges you could say, or like uh, conditions and pay that they got previously under regimes where the dissemination of their work was much more like centralized, you know? Yeah. But do you think there's another element to it as well that you could say about the publications that have gone on uh, strike or unionized in New York, like the New York Times, for example, New Yorker? There's a lot of examples um, that we don't we don't try to put too much uh, emphasis on ideology or like the ideological apparatus or of the media. But the fact that these places are increasingly staffed by union workers who have been through union struggles and seen the way management behaves and the way their own unions behave, um, they're just going to be smarter when they write their articles or essays or TV shows. They're going to be, they're going to portray things if they can uh, with a slant of class struggle to some extent, because they've experienced it instead of just like learned about it in school. Yeah, no, that's, that's possible. I mean, I, I, I think I see like real limitations in that because the way these, like back to like the the Herman whatever and Chomsky um, propaganda model, uh, the people that end up say at the New York Times or the Atlantic or whatever have been selected out for a long time for like obedience and discipline to a particular worldview and also like way of understanding and disseminating information. I think in like a stupider sense, so too have like writers who've made it pretty far in Hollywood, like there's probably certain lines that they understand they can't cross, but whether those lines potentially start to break down because of this is an interest, but capital still controls what they produce though, you know, especially if you're a union because you're not, you're not like a writer at a college, you're not at uh, like Tisch at NYU or whatever, like cobbling together some radical uh, movie about the overthrow of the value form or whatever, you're like well within the studio apparatus, which you know, I, I have a passing knowledge of it. I think we all kind of do. It's like this whole environment of movie and TV and book production is like a very entrepreneurial one. You know, you have these big production studios, the big, big capital, right? The ones that act basically like hedge funds or like they're the ones at the very top who are controlling the, the flows of capital that go. But then on a level below that, you have like the independent production studios who are buying the content directly from writers or whatever, setting up uh, particular commodities and products known as television shows. And then eventually those get sent up to the top where like the real profits are made by these. And so even the ones that do portray class struggle, like uh, sorry to bother you or something like that has been selected because that's a good commodity to sell class struggle to a certain demographic. Right. Right. And, and, and like the final veto power, except if it's like a fully independent thing, which is probably to say a non-union production, uh, the veto power is always at the end in capital. People would try to argue that the veto power in the end of the day is in the consumer's hands. I mean, I don't think that's true. You could like, I don't think that we actually have much control at all about what's being created in Hollywood. Certainly if like the 17,000th shitty Marvel movie, which I haven't seen, is getting another uh, quarter of a billion dollars or half billion dollars to get produced on a green screen somewhere. I don't think that there's like a, a critical mass of... But then even if out. we do like with um, uh, Parasite, you know, it was like this class struggle movie. And as a result, I think that's why we saw so many class struggle movies in the last year like The Menu and Glass Onion to some extent yeah. and Triangle Sadness. Like, there's like a, you know, we've talked about it before on the show, there's like five or six of them yeah. that were all like kind of the same and all came out uh, around the same time. And there's a theory that's pretty convincing to me that they came out at the same time because these were scripts that were written for or purchased 
based on the success of Parasite, and it took that long for him to come out. So, yeah, so I guess it's, you know, on the consumption side, maybe it led to the creation of these class struggle movies, and maybe there's more militant writers to write these class struggle movies with, like, a more mature uh, uh, method or uh, whatever, but, um, you know, and in the end, they're just cultural products that I don't think change anything in the world. Yeah. Or maybe you, or imperceptibly they you, do. You have to go back to the 1890s and create like the, the workers cooperative studio that's going to be able, like the baseball league, the brotherhood, the brotherhood of writers and filmmakers um, movie studio, which is like a direct cooperative where, yeah. And then it'll fail within a year because the one good movie will end up getting sold to like, Warner Brothers. I mean, there are cooperative like streaming services and yeah. and uh, distributors and stuff like Means TV, um, and there's a few examples like that. So they exist. Uh, we shouldn't short sell that stuff. But it, you know, again, it's still like it's interesting to think about, but it's still just cultural production. And uh, here on the Antifada, we do not believe that uh, <laughs> politics is downstream from culture. We believe we. it's downstream from materialism. Yeah, from materialism. We do believe that. I mean, I think that there's an interplay between those things. I think this maybe is like the beginning of a larger conversation that you and I can start having and then probably with guests too where cuz I've been trying to like think more about this culture war cul-de-sac that we're all in. Maybe we should start doing some content where we actually like try to do an imminent critique of this of of this whole mode of politics in a in a more systematic way. No, like, um, I, I, my first, uh, I mean, not to paraphrase an evil person, but like whenever I hear the word culture, I reach for my Browning 22, like this, I'm j- I, I just, I don't think that culture explains that much. And maybe I'm a reactionary because I first went to, you know, undergraduate in the 1990s and the two thousands when it was very much still the cultural turn, you know, within like academia that uh, culture, that politics was indeed downstream from culture, this sort of end of history conception of things, uh, very much has turned me on, turned me off to like culturalist explanations of things, whether it's culture industry or whether it's like this bullshit right-wing populism about working class culture or whatever. But there's something there. I think we've kind of gestured towards it on this show before, like trying to understand imminently why all sorts of like quote-unquote real politics or you could say material politics especially in America, but now more and more around the world, in Russia and Ukraine, for example, more and more is getting filtered through, at least ostensibly through, like a culturalist lens, where more and more looks like culture war while the class war goes on at the same time. I think it's an interesting question, not one I have an answer to, but one that maybe we should, like, take seriously. It's interpreting class war by the way the size of the class war address, by, mm-hmm. like, the, the uh, form of appearance of it instead of its content. Or, uh, or like its uh, material basis, I think. I think that's true. Uh, I, I, I truly do believe that. I guess the more interesting question to me is like, why, why has it become the de facto mode of politics nowadays? What does that say about politics? And maybe we go back to DeBoer. Maybe, uh, you know, I've never read commentaries on the Society of the Spectacle, which is his... Uh, his second, his like rejoinder or like his update yeah, yeah. side of the spectacle. Maybe I've read some that. of it. Uh, yeah, that'd be a cool thing to do and get Eric John back on. But so let's go to the bonus. Before we do that, I want to read through this uh, list of acts of solidarity with the WGA from Vulture. Oh, hell yeah. Um, Charlie Day skipped doing red carpet interviews. All right. Uh, I That's won't the say, guy from Always Sunny? Yep. I won't cool. say which film he skipped doing red carpet interviews for because that would be breaking the picket line. Mm, Michael yeah. J. Fox's film Bleep had its <laughs> premiere postponed due to Fox refusing to cross picket lines. All right. Thank you, Michael J. Fox. Thank you, Michael J. Fox. Maim Bialik, who you know as Blossom? Blossom. Is that oh, Blossom? Blossom. Wow. Without without her, uh, certainly the production companies are going to fail. Well, she is <laughs> the new, she's the the new host of Jeopardy. Oh, she is. And okay. she decided not to host last uh, week. Our Blossom's all grown up. But yeah. she got... They, there was a scab, Ken Jennings. Oh, Ken Jennings shit. scabbed and is hosting Jeopardy Cross now. the fucking lines, man. Where does she think she's going to get with that? What do you get in, like, in your pay for one episode of Jeopardy? Like $10,000 to host it? You know, what do you, what do you think you're accomplishing here? You think your scab ass is going gonna, is gonna to get one over on Blossom? I think he does you, it for the you, love of the game. You, ma'am, are no Alex Trebek. <laughs> <laughs> I knew Alex Trebek, and you, ma'am, are no Alex. 
And uh, lastly, and and very strangely, George R. R. Martin, you know, posted his blog on Twitter um, saying that he supports the writer's strike. And Elon Musk replied and said, <laughs> solid points in support of junior writers, and it would not be a significant impact on show budgets. Also, shows will be better if junior writers are able to understand the whole picture. Thank you, comrade Elon. You are wow. a fascist in all other ways, <laughs> but you are a nerd, and so you support they, George R. R. Martin. This is why we need the head nerd, the chief of the nerds, the king, the monarch of nerds, which is J.R.R. Martin. You know, his influence is so great across his kingdom of nerds that if you win him to the union cause, even a fucking troglodyte like Elon Musk ends up maybe taking the right position. So, on that. yeah, this is, I mean, this is just contradicts everything we were saying before about the and culture the, stuff, you know, yeah. like Elon, if, you know, if, uh, if, if Iron Man was a more class conscious <laughs> movie, then Twitter would be uh, like a sickle and hammer space yeah. now instead of a white nationalist space. Yeah, that's right. Somebody should organize Twitter now. And then, you know, we could control the posters union. No, like the workers at Twitter should organize against Elon. I think and we should organize against the workers. Yes. yes. So, um, we're going to talk more about, uh, I, I, all right, so we're going to go to the, uh, we're going to go to the bonus. Bonus. The fun half. Fun half. But before that, I want to play a little audio that will give you a preview <laughs> of what we're going to talk about. Yeah, we're going to talk about um, trade unionism, the green, such as it exists in the United States, the Green New Deal. We might touch upon the dust up from Dylan Riley's um, New Left Review sidecar article where the left Keynesians got really pissed off at him for saying, no, we need to seize the means. We can't just do a Green New Deal. Maybe Aaron Benenev, friend of the show's response to that, beautiful response to that. And we have a lot going on. So Andy will play us out and we'll see you guys on the other side. Patreon.com slash the Antifa. And besides all that, I am going to try to defend this horrible thing that you're about to hear. And I think the problem is, like, as much as I love to work together with trade unions, and I think we should try it all the time we can, but it is a fact that a lot of these unionized white and male working class workers vote for the right, as you said, because they are very deeply involved in the imperial mode of living. They are profiteers from the exploitation of women, of queers, of people of color, of black people worldwide via very long supply chains and energy production somewhere else and uh, care work in the household, etc. And therefore, I really think it is very hard to stuck to those now nearly 200-year-old analysis of Marx that these kind of working class will be the pillar of transformation. I don't think Shots fired on left reckoning. All right, that's, and yeah, that's Andrea Vetter from The Future is Degrowth. We talked about that book on the show. And yeah, that was clipped by Matt Leck and David Griscom for Left Reckoning. And they were very upset about what she said, and I don't blame them, but I will, uh, I'll try to find the kernel of truth in that in, in the fun half. If you want to hear that, patreon.com slash the Antifada. We'll see you on the other side.